In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. When I was growing up, 49 years ago, this second Sunday of Easter was the second Sunday of Easter. It wouldn't be until college that I would learn about Low Sunday, and Dominica and Albis, and all sorts of other cool traditional things. It was the second Sunday of Easter. To me, it was the Sunday when we celebrate the sacrament of penance. Our Lord is described as breathing on the apostles, telling them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. As a young uh, Catholic apologist, when I got my first set of topic tabs, Bible topic tabs, where the categories are indicated by a color and a logo, and you put them on the edge of your Bible pages, and then you got a cheat sheet in the back, which is super helpful. And this was totally key, John 20, uh, the Resurrection Sunday, uh, the Sacrament of Penance right there. That easily, you know, one of my easiest ones to remember, I guess, because 20 is both numbers are round and it's John and John's cool. I don't know. John 20 was just easy to remember. Obviously, I'd have to flip around to find the, the, the exact passage, but confession is the easiest thing, one of my favorite things to explain. And this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, was when we heard, was when we hear, still hear, it's when we always have heard that reading. Some years later, I, am, I was in college or out of college. It was on my birthday, and St. Faustina wasn't St. Faustina yet, but she was beatified. And I remember going to the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Might have been already called a basilica at that time, I'm not sure, but growing up it was the shrine. It eventually became the basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. It was that, that day of her beatification, if I'm not mistaken, was the first time that I ever was part of something religious that was simulcast. Because I recall, maybe it's a false recollection, but I'm pretty sure I recall being in the shrine for the beatification of Faustina, and there was a broadcast that we were seeing on the screen in the shrine. Not even that. I always associate beatification with, with my birthday. I came to learn about the Divine Mercy devotion uh, promptly. Um, it became a regular fixture in our household. Uh, there's an image of, of the Divine Mercy that was over my parents' bed. Uh, on my dad's gravestone are the words etched, Jesus, I trust in you. Uh, it was a, um, an example of the very childlike, the very innocent, boyish way that my dad would pray, as, especially as he got older, his, his praying became more and more innocent, more and more sincere, less and less guile, just, just, a, just a 
a soul talking to God. And um, the Divine Mercy Chapel became a regular fixture. A lot of us just simply appended it to family prayers after the, oh, after the rosary. At some point in time, I, I became familiar with uh, St. Faustina. I was in the seminary that I heard of her diary and knew, knew friends who were very familiar with her. And at some point in time, I think I became familiar with the, the, um, this, the, the idea of Divine Mercy Sunday uh, and everything associated with it. But remember, in my mind, for decades, I already associated the second Sunday of Easter with God's great mercy and the gift of the sacrament of penance, uh, God's extraordinary mercy to St. Thomas. This reading, this John chapter 20, the verses happen to be 19 to 31 for the second Sunday of Easter. We have two different Sundays being described. It begins, the narrative begins with Easter Sunday itself. And then it switches over to a week later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. So over the past few days, we haven't necessarily been following a chronology in our gospel readings, but last Sunday and this Sunday, we do. Remember that this Sunday begins the gospel narrative a week ago, Easter Sunday, and then we get to today. What is it that happened that week after that Sunday, a week after the resurrection, Christ appeared to them again. He says, peace be with you. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Bring your hand and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And then says, have you come to believe because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. To me, this has always been the extraordinary example of, of God's mercy. First of all, the apostles have been told several times to go to Galilee. They didn't go to Galilee yet. They're still afraid. They're still in, still in Jerusalem. Jesus could have come into the room and scolded them and said, what are you doing here? He could have sent a messenger and said, I've told you already now several times, go to Galilee. I am not going, you will not see me again until you go to Galilee. He could have done that. He could have sent another messenger, but he didn't. He came himself. Jesus Christ came to do himself what he had already sent messengers to do, unsuccessful. Sounds like the whole Old Testament and New Testament in a slight microcosm. God sends a messenger. The messenger is ignored. God sends his only begotten son. Here Christ is doing the same thing. That's not just a once and for all uh, paradigm. God is God's doing that so frequently. He sends messengers. Uh, what's the word for messenger? Angels. Okay? God sends angels to us. He sends messengers. Sometimes we're the messengers for others. Or sometimes we receive each other, but don't recognize each other as God's messenger. And then God just intervenes himself. First example of Christ's extraordinary mercy. He could have come in and totally excoriated them, but he didn't. Secondly, he comes and says, peace be with you. That, that's the greeting we hear when people are afraid and they need to be told, peace, 
Don't be even further frightened. That's what angels tell those to whom they are speaking. The archangel Gabriel to, to Mary, to others, peace, peace be with you. Our Lord says it for good reason. They're, they're frightened. That's why they're locked up. He's in their midst. They're going to be even more frightened. Peace be with you. He comes to give them peace. He comes, he comes to bring them good. He doesn't, he doesn't come to, to punish them. They, they're, in a sense, they're already punishing themselves. Peace be with you. And then with Thomas, how much more could Thomas be the object of extraordinary frustration? Our Lord expressed frustration with the apostles many times in the Gospels. Not today. He just simply says, put your finger here. See my hands. These, these, these nail marks, which we know now are in his wrists, right? Not in the palms of his hands. And in his side, these, these aren't imperfections of the resurrection. These are the, the glories of the victor in battle. These, and there are also indications that this really is the same Jesus that you knew and loved and saw die on the cross. This is, this is really Jesus. I think the resurrection could be slightly more complicated if our Lord didn't display uh, these marks of his victory. Put your hand on my side. That's one just egregious detail. Think about it. Think about the conversation between the ten apostles and Thomas. How many times and in what ways did the ten apostles try to convince Thomas that Jesus really is risen from the dead? They didn't just see a ghost. They didn't just imagine it. It really is Jesus. And it's not just our Lord's spirit visiting from heaven, but it's our Lord's actual body, resurrected, transformed. It's really him. Thomas is refusing to believe it. And how does Thomas express his lack of belief. He doesn't say, I wish I could believe you. I just can't. Or it just seems too good to be true. No, there's something completely undignified about how he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, not just see it, and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I, can, I, I have a hard time imagining the disgust that John especially, the youngest, and Peter would have that Thomas, Thomas, Thomas doesn't believe them. Okay, it's, it seems hard to believe, but you would actually, if, if it were actually Jesus, would you actually insist on putting your hand into his side? It's almost a way of Thomas saying, it didn't happen, period. And the way he describes the proof that he would need for it to happen is something horrible. This isn't just Thomas saying, I really need a little more evidence. I'm not, not believing. No, Thomas rejects this. There's no dignified, reverent way to, to say those words. I will need to put my hand into his side in order for me to believe. 
Thank you. I, that's probably a new thought. I, I apologize for the unpleasantness of it, but that's a horrible image. It's a horrible thing to say. And what does Jesus say when he comes in on the Sunday after Easter? Thomas, put your finger here. Bring your hand. Put it into my side. He knows there is a, there is a, maybe in, in now in this framing of it, it sounds like a slight rebuke, but it's not, it's not in any way the, the, um, the, br- the brutal response that Thomas deserves. Our Lord loves him so much. And yes, he was, he, Thomas described in undignified uh, disdain what it would take for him to believe. And Jesus says, just come here. I want you to believe. Put your hand, put your hand on my side. Don't remain, don't remain unbelieving, but believe. Now, the, the, the same theology professor whom I, to whom I alluded a few days ago who rejects the idea that the resurrected Christ ate the fish uh, which is just obtuse and unnecessary and uh, silly because it's in the narrative. Jesus, Jesus gave us the Gospels in order for us to, to know the truth and to believe it, and the Gospels are simple historical narrative. It's just, if it's described in the Gospels, it actually happened. It's not enough to say that the apostles really think it happened. No, it really happened. I will admit, though, the same clever uh, professor points out, or he pointed out when we took his class 24 years ago. No, it was 25 years ago. It was in first theology. The gospel narrative never says that Jesus grabbed Thomas's finger and pulled it into his side or grabbed Thomas's hand and put it in. We, uh, we see that in artwork a lot, and I don't mind that at all, because that, that communicates so much more of what's going on in their minds. Thomas, would, would Thomas have, have seen our Lord, heard his voice? When our Lord calls you, when the resurrected Christ calls you by name, you recognize him. Um, Would he still have insisted on putting his finger into Jesus' hand and putting his his own hand into Jesus' side? I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think he would have been moved to such remorse and gratitude and joy. No, he wouldn't have done that. Maybe our Lord still grabbed his finger and put it into his hand or grabbed his hand and put it into his side. Entirely possible. So I don't begrudge the the great artist who depicted it that way. Admittedly, if you saw a picture painting of our Lord resurrected and other people gawking at him or being amazed at him, that wouldn't necessarily communicate even that this is Thomas. Um, Grabbing the hand, I love Caravaggio's doubting Thomas. Grabbing the hand and jamming it in. That, That expresses the great love and the great mercy of God. He's, he's humble. He wants us to 
to know him. He wants us to love him. He's, he's, not, he's not making it more difficult than it needs to be. It's an extraordinary scene. It's always been an extraordinary scene. It, how much more can we say about God's mercy? And it's, it's on Easter Sunday, yes, of course, that our Lord communicates to the apostles the power to forgive sins and the power to not forgive sins. When does the church, through her bishops and priests, not forgive a sin when, when it's manifest that the person isn't contrite? It's very helpful. It's, um, going to a priest for confession helps us be confident. I really am forgiven. It's such a great mercy of God to establish the sacrament for that purpose. We can wonder in, in so much um, desire and hope and, and still doubt and agony. Am I really forgiven? Am I sorry enough to have been forgiven? Catholics don't have to fret that. And Christ doesn't want any Christian to fret that. Go, 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 show yourself to the priest. The apostles have been given the power to forgive and to not forgive. It's very clear in the New Testament. They understood themselves to be ambassadors of God's mercy. St. James tells the reader, to, people confess their sins to one another before the anointing of the sick even. We still do that. We still do all of that because God is so merciful. He wants us not just to be forgiven. He wants us not just to be saved, to be redeemed, to be justified, to be on the road to heaven. He wants us to know that we are. And he wants us to know how to cooperate that, how to, how to be more receptive, to be more docile in his hands so that God's grace is even more effective in us. He wants us to know how that works. What a great blessing, a great consolation to know I have been forgiven. And I don't need to be perfectly sorry. I can be like the prodigal son. As long as I'm sorry enough, I know I can go to confession and be absolved and know that God has forgiven me. Thanks be to God. There are times when maybe I can't get to confession. Um, it, that should be practically impossible for me. Not that I can confess to myself, but there's uh, priests around. If, a, if it's impossible to go to a priest for confession, you can make an act, a perfect act of contrition. The church it imparts to you, the, by the power of God, absolution from sin, provided that your contrition is perfect, which means it has nothing to do with being afraid of punishment. It's, it's merely and totally the love of God that prompts your heart to be contrite. And if you're resolved to go to confession as soon as you can, reasonably, then sure, that the, the church readily imparts to you absolution of sins. This is something that was given to Peter, to the apostles, to the church, to administer, to not to administer. A similar way that the church imparts Something that is, in many respects, beyond our grasping is when, when we receive the apostolic pardon, just at the moment of death. The anointing of the sick is something we receive when we're gravely ill, which means more than just, I have 
a, a surgery coming up. Um, otherwise, we would anoint people before they get onto an airplane because that's dangerous too. Or, um, or I have something that's really painful. When, it's, when we have a grave illness that untreated would lead to death, then anointing of the sick is proper. But that still doesn't equate to last rites. When people ask for last rites, they should make sure that the priest who comes not only gives the anointing of the sick, but also the apostolic pardon. It's one of my favorite things to say. As much as I love the words of consecration, as much as I love the words of absolution, the words of the apostolic pardon are so unique because they happen so infrequently and they're so powerful. By the authority given me by the apostolic see, I grant to you a full pardon and the remission of all your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It means that soul not only is forgiven of sins, but is freed from all purgatory, all punishment due to sin that's been confessed and absolved, or, or all sin that still adheres to them because they're uh, in the state of venial sin, or, or otherwise they've been freed from sin, they've been freed from all punishment to sin. Because at the moment of death, it's hard to imagine a soul more, more ready to, to be to desire only one thing, to desire only God. God gives to the world, through the church, extraordinary, extraordinary grace, extraordinary mercy. And it's, it's very humbling to be the one through whose lips and hands these things take place. For a number of years now, we've been referring to this Sunday as Divine Mercy Sunday. Officially, it's in, it's in, the, it's in the Roman Missal as reprinted by Pope St. John Paul II. The Church imparts to the faithful a plenary indulgence. And in 2002, when that plenary indulgence was established and described, it accounted for people such as sailors or others would be prevented from going to church on Divine Mercy Sunday. And so as long as someone has the intention of going to confession as soon as they can, of receiving Holy Communion as soon as they can, they can receive the plenary indulgence. And so I encourage you all to, to ask the Lord for that and to give yourself to him, to be as sorry for your sins as you possibly can, to desire to be with him as much as you can, to do more than just want to get to heaven, but to, but to worship and glorify God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and even all your body. To realize that it's with our bodies that we worship God, which is why we want to be bodily present when the worship of God is happening. Even if we don't receive Holy Communion, we know that to be present in body and spirit, not just in spirit, is an intrinsic part of worshiping God. We don't just simply offer up a sacrifice by which we, we, we commend to God the Father the Spirit of Christ. Oh, we, we lift up in the one eternal sacrifice the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. We worship God in body and spirit. And so with our, with our hearts and with our bodies, we entrust ourselves to God's great mercy we ask him to, to purify us, to perfect us, 
Not just so that we can get to heaven, but so that we can magnify the glory of God. I'm pretty sure the Blessed Virgin Mary wasn't intent on simply getting to heaven. I'm pretty sure the Blessed Virgin Mary was intent on being God's handmaid, glorifying Him, worshiping Him, being with Him. That, that should be our goal. It's to, to, to desire that, desire only that, is to be not just in the state of grace, but really to be free from the attachment to sin, to desire only God, not to desire sin, but grudgingly not cave into it. That is a requirement for the plenary indulgence, to be free from the attachment to sin, not just to pray for the Pope's intentions, receive Holy Communion, go to confession, pray the creed. We have to be free from the attachment to sin. That's not an obstacle. That's not a burden to be free from the attachment to sin. It is difficult, of course. But can you imagine, what, what does it mean to receive a plenary indulgence? It means to be freed from all purgatory, from all obstacles, all delay from going straight to heaven. What does it mean to be a soul headed straight for heaven? It means to be a perfect soul. Only, only, only the perfectly holy can be in the presence of God and be happy. All of sacred scripture attests to that. And so to be, to be a soul that's ready to go straight to heaven means that this soul, I don't know why I'm pointing to myself because my soul ain't perfect, but that soul is perfect. Perfect. Loves perfectly. Hopes perfectly. Believes perfectly. A perfect soul ready to go straight to heaven doesn't have attachment to sin. Doesn't desire sin. That's different. So, if any, I don't think any of you are scroops, but if any of you are scroops, meaning suffering from scrupulosity, cover your ears. There are th- three things from which we need to distinguish. The, the, the voice of the world or the voice of the devil whispering to us to terrible things that might seem distractions or temptations. It's not your sin. There are, the, there are the natural desires for things that in our given situation or state in life may be sinful, but we don't, um, we don't actually desire them. But we're aware of an inclination or uh, an appetite for them. But and in the same way that I see chocolate cake and I want to eat it, that doesn't mean I crave for it and I, I, I give myself to it. It's different. The voice of the world, voice of the devil... There's the, the temptation that I, um, acknowledge, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not giving myself to it. And then there's the temptation that I really give into, and internally I actually, I actually intend to be committed to it, or I am already anticipating it, and I'm already enjoying it, which is to say I'm already committing that sin, even though I haven't done it physically. Three different things. The, the random voices that are not our own. The real temptation that I'm not giving into. And the temptation that I really give my heart to. Three very different things. Those, who, those souls who suffer the great pain and weakness of scrupulosity can't distinguish between any of that. The slightest thing that's wrong with them prompts them to accuse themselves of mortal sin, the first, the slightest thing that they feel inside or think inside or hear, even if it's not their own, and even if it's not an act of the will, 
they immediately accuse themselves of mortal sin. It's a terrible scourge to bear. It's very difficult to advance. It's very difficult to go to confession peacefully or effectively when someone's scrupulous. And it's, it's nothing to, to permit to linger. By the same token, some of the greatest saints were groups. Because it's easy to take someone and rein them back, rein them in a little bit, and, and, and form them. It's much harder to take a, a lazy, lukewarm soul and to, to, to put the fire of the Holy Spirit in them. So, what is a soul that's ready to go to heaven? Yeah, it might get those voices from the devil in the world, but they're not interested in them. And they, they may very well acknowledge, yeah, sure, I'd love to you know, eat that cake, but it's not proper for right now. I'm not hungry, and it's not time to eat. A soul that's ready for heaven may very well be entertained by those things, but an attachment to sin, a desire for sin, without necessarily giving into it. I do, I wish I could do that, but I'm not going to... Um, that is not a characteristic of a soul that's headed straight to heaven. So a soul that's heading straight to heaven that, has, that is not going to be delayed by purgatory, that is ready in that moment for the beatific vision, can't possibly be a soul that still has an attachment to sin. So when the church says for a plenary indulgence, you have to be free from the attachment to sin, she's not adding an additional burden She's not saying you got to do more in order to get this great prize. The church is saying this is, this is one and the same thing. The soul that's ready for heaven doesn't, doesn't desire sin, isn't attached to sin anymore. It's a simple statement of fact. It's, it's a description of, it's almost as much a description of this is what you will be like after a, after a plenary indulgence. But it's... It's the reality. Um, it's one thing if God intervenes and says, I cleanse you. It's a different thing for us to say, I am I'm reaching for, for the grace that God um, makes available. Like the woman hemorrhaging who, gre- who grabs our, Lord hem, our Lord's hem. Strive for the greatest gifts. Desire not just to get to heaven but to love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. To worship him and and glorify him in every way, in your heart, in your mind, in your affections, in your thoughts, and also in your bodies. And trust in him. The Lord loves us more than we we know. He, He isn't intervening in order to punish us. He is intervening. It might be painful at first, but... Because he, he loves us and he wants us to be with him. Not because something's missing from heaven. Not because, he's, not because heaven's going to be worse without us. Not because he misses us. But because he loves us. For our benefit. For the glory of the Father and the Holy Spirit. God has done all this. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.